Well, it's that time of year again. You know, Christmas. Um, has, anybody, has anybody here uh, ever, like, Googled awkward family Christmas photos? <laughs> you really probably shouldn't. Um, but it's one of the things I like to do in a little spare time, especially on the holidays when I'm feeling uh, particularly in the mood. Um, it makes me feel better about myself, right? Um, here, here's another one. Um, you know, a part of me feels a little bit bad because it's like, hey, we're making fun of these people at church. And, uh, but they're, they're begging for it, aren't they? I mean, how, how can you not? Yeah, okay, that's, yep, yep. Um. I don't even know what to say, right? Um, and honestly, I'm only showing the, like, the G-rated ones. It gets, it gets weirder and worse, let me tell you. Um, we actually, in our own actual physical mailbox every year, we get one uh, ridiculously awkward Christmas card. It's kind of one of the highlights of the year for me personally. I always look forward to that one. You know, go to the mailbox each day. Um, uh, last year, uh, the wife was dressed like Princess Leia, which actually I can appreciate. I'm enough of a nerd. That's okay. Uh, but it was the Jabba's slave uh, bikini and chains wearing Leia that just made it weird. I mean... I always actually try to, like, save their Christmas card for later on in the year when I need a good laugh. Um, but Kelly, uh, who definitely loves Jesus more than I do, she manages to, <laughs> she manages to throw it away. But maybe this year. Um, and I, you know, I've been in my share of terrible family photos, okay? I'm definitely a child of the 80s. Um, here's another one. This is a good, a good family wedding here. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I realize I'm part of the problem, but um, I mean, what... What is it about Christmas time that brings all of the weirdos out of our families, right? And not just them. I mean, let's be honest, right? But even like the weirdest parts of who we are. I mean, all, all the skeletons in the closet that we've been hiding away for the last 11 months, they, they come, you know, dancing out, ready, ready to party with, with everybody else. I mean, it's the, it's the Uncle Eddie's, it's the aunt that nobody talks about. Uh, the sibling you really wish hadn't made it in, right? Every family's got them. It might be you, right? It might be me. But it, it's there. And, and what, what actually makes it worse is that they're part of us, right? I mean, that's, that's family. We're all, we're, all, we're all connected in these, in these like, really, really strange ways. We're brought together. Family, family history matters, and whether it's genetics or if it's just the way that you were raised and your parents were raised and their parents were raised, nevertheless, we, each of us, are somehow this odd collection of all those people who have gone before us. And it's not always funny. In one way or another, we all come from broken families. Well, they didn't have Christmas family photos way, way way back then, partially because Christmas hadn't been invented yet, and uh, photos hadn't, hadn't either, and yet they had their own equivalent. They kept track of, of genealogies, these long lists of, of names, like an ancient photo album where a picture really would be worth a thousand words. Um, it gave them a sense of who they were. It, it gave them their, their identity. It, it was part of, part of the very fabric of, of themselves. And, and so it makes sense that the Gospel of Matthew begins with the most awkward family photo of all. I mean, you thought your family had skeletons. 
You, you couldn't find a more sordid family tree in, in Game of Thrones. And we're, we're talking about Jesus here. Matthew begins with the family history of the Christ. And there's two things in particular that he wants us to see as he brings us out, as he starts there of, like, of all places with this long list of names. Not a, not a great way to grab an audience, right? But he, he starts there for, for two reasons. It's not just a bunch of random people, right? Uh, first of all, and this is the obvious one or the more obvious one, he wants to show that Jesus really is king, that he has rights to this, this throne to be the Messiah. But the second reason, the one we, we often overlook, and Matthew goes out of his way to tell us, it's that his family history is a mess. Jesus is king of one ugly kingdom. Put that on a Christmas card, right? Because who's in this family photo with him? There's a lot of nobodies, frankly, rejects, losers, outcasts, uh, foreigners, immigrants, refugees. There's, there's sinners like prostitutes, idolaters, adulterers, sexual deviants, right? All kinds of things there there in this list, it's kind of like they're, you know, squeezing in for a, a selfie with Jesus, right? It's people who don't belong. People like you. People like me. Jesus is king of one ugly kingdom. But he's making us beautiful. And so this morning, we're, we're continuing on in this, this study in um, this, this idea, we call it for all people, uh, looking at that all across the scripture, this isn't like an aspect of God's plan or an optional part, that very core to who he is from the very beginning of the story to the very end. And now today at the very center of the story, we have a God who wants a really big family from all people. That God is passionate for, for, for all, for the, for the whole world. And this morning we're also entering more fully into the Advent season as, as we start the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll be in Matthew well, well into the next year together. And we're, we're going to begin where Matthew begins. Part of scriptures, if you're uh, someone who, who reads your Bible, and I hope you are, these are the parts we skip over, right? I would quickly like gloss over at best, right? Uh, it, it's tedious, it's boring, it seems just frankly awful to read, doesn't it? So with that, why don't we stand? Um, for the reading of God's word, seriously. Up, up. <laughs> so our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Aminadab and Aminadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, 
Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, Matthew says, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Jesus is king of one ugly kingdom. Now, Matthew is writing maybe somewhere between 20 and 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, which, which means, as we look at these 28 chapters together in Matthew over these coming months, that he, Matthew was either an eyewitness of these things or had access to eyewitnesses. I mean, either way, when Matthew writes, there are people who are still alive that can either confirm or deny the things that he is recording for us. I mean, the stories for some of us may seem ridiculous, right? You may not believe that they're true, but Matthew, at the very least, goes out of his way to show us that He's rooting this in real, actual history. And so Matthew, the author, he's one of the disciples. He's a former tax collector, which in those days you couldn't get much worse than a tax collector. So Matthew knows intimately how ugly this kingdom gets. But what's essential at the start of this, this long list of names, it's not just random, is that Jesus have, has every right to be king. And it's important for Matthew to go there. Uh, because he didn't look like a king, Jesus, right? He was a humble peasant, a crucified revolutionary. There was nothing about him that screamed out, hey, this, guy, this guy's royalty, he's a king. But look, at, look at verse one again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's sort of the, the title of this section. The son of Abraham first is what he says. So what, what he's saying there, I mean, even just those, those couple of words, right, is that, Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises made 2,000 years before this to Abraham. We looked, we looked at some of those in Genesis 12 a couple of weeks ago uh, when God said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is Matthew's way of saying that Jesus fulfills that promise. But also the son of David. The fulfillment of the, the promises made 1,000 years later in 2 Samuel 7, for example, when God says to David that his son, uh, speaking specifically of, of Solomon, but ultimately of Jesus, God says to David, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, to us, none of this may really seem to matter, right? It's like, family history, and we, we get that it's important, but there's all this royalty, and like, what's the big deal? But you got to remember, for, for first century Jews, colonized by Rome, with a kingship that had been dead for centuries, the thought of a new king coming on, on, on the scene was, was huge. And even more than that, the idea that God fulfills even these seemingly outdated promises. Now, a couple of little, little clarifications. Yes, Jesus was, was born of a virgin, so why this talk of Joseph, right? We'll talk more about that craziness next week and why, why the virgin birth matters and all of that. 
But, but for, for here, for today, in a patriarchal society, uh, even if Joseph was Jesus' stepdad, right, which is what, what I would believe um, as a result of the virgin birth, this lineage would have carried the same weight for Jesus. He, he was adopted into that family and given the full, the full rights through, through Joseph. So that's, that's kind of verse 1, okay? Uh, and now, now look at verse 17, okay? Because this is kind of, both of these are, are Matthew's summary statements of this kind of kingly idea. And then we'll, we'll kind of work our way through the middle in a second. But verse, verse 17 is just, frankly, it's just kind of weird, right? If you're listening, like, why, why these three sets of 14 generations? Well, there's, not a, there's a, lot of, a lot of debate on, on how exactly those numbers add up. Um, and the reality is, even if you're just like slightly good at math, um, or even, you know, barely uh, understanding or of the, uh, familiar with the Old Testament, uh, you know that there's generations left out, right? There's, there's no way from Abraham to Jesus is only 42 generations. Uh, and that's okay, right? That would have been obvious to Matthew's readers. It was often genealogies skipped over certain folks. It wasn't a big deal, right? These are the, the, are the 42 that Matthew wants included. And, and father in the language can just as easily mean ancestor. So it's really, it's really not a big deal. It was a normal practice, but why 14, right? 14, 14, 14. What's the big deal there? Well, a couple of things. First, it's just easier to memorize, right? I mean, I know nobody wants to do that, but in a world where paper was kind of scarce, right? Everybody knows who goes after Abijah, right? Asaph, of course, right? Everybody knows that. Um, but even, even more than that, and this is, this is bizarre, okay, uh, but most scholars agree that the number 14, the significance there, why Matthew pairs this list down to 14, is not just for, for memory's sake. It's because 14 is the nu- numerical value in the Hebrew letters of the name David. That Matthew here is being super thorough. Jesus is David's son. He's heir to the, the throne of God, the fulfillment of every promise God ever made. And Matthew doesn't want us to miss it. So yeah, Jesus, he may, he may be a king, But as we dig deeper, it is of one ugly kingdom. I mean, I've got to tell you, if I were to make up a story about a king, or or even more, the story of a son of God, our Savior, I would have left out a whole lot of these names. I mean, nobody makes up a family history like this. And yet Matthew goes out of his way, dragging skeleton after skeleton out of God's closet for us all to see. He doesn't want us to miss what's happening here. And so we're going to slow down and actually go through it, the entire list. So either uh, fasten your seatbelts or sneak out and leave, um, because this, this is happening. Um, it starts with Abraham, okay? And for many of us, we probably know something about Abraham. We won't spend a ton of time there because we've, we've talked about him even in the recent past. But, I mean, Abraham is considered a decent guy, a faithful man, like the beginning of this, this whole new thing and, and all of that. And yet he's also, he's also a liar. He also proves himself to be rather faithless time and time again. And he and his wife are unable to have kids. Even so, they have Isaac, whose names served as a reminder for the rest of his life that his parents had laughed at God. He was also unable to have kids. Nevertheless, he has Jacob. Jacob is a real liar, a cheat, a swindler. Over and over again in the stories about him, I mean, it's just kind of ugly. And he's also unable to have kids. Maybe pick up a theme there, right? 
doesn't look like it's going to happen, and yet he has enough sons for the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what Matthew means when he says Judah and his brothers. The whole, the whole, the whole family, right? The whole, the whole nation, the 12 tribes. And Judah himself is supposed to be the, the beginning of this, this kingly line. But do you see who Judah gets pregnant? Tamar. This is, this is where the list gets interesting. Because uh, Tamar is the first of four women listed here. And we're talking, this is a patriarchal society. Uh, and so it would be uncommon, uh, not unheard of, but uncommon for any woman to appear in a genealogy list. It, just was, it wasn't necessary. It's not how you trace the, the family. And if you did, for the exceptions, right, when there were women mentioned in the genealogies, it was always the heroines, right? It was the Sarahs and the Rebeccas and the Rachels, all of whom are unnoticed in this list. These four? All four of them are foreigners, which at first glance, they have no place in this, this story. And all four of them are associated with pretty disturbing sexual sin. Which is interesting as well, if you think about the connection, because I'm sure that Mary was accused of sexual sin all of her life, right? Virgin, really, Mary, really, right? I mean, how many times has she asked that question? And yet it's, it's drawn out here for us. Tamar. Now here, here's a family member that I guarantee didn't get invited to family birthdays. No graduations, no weddings, nothing. But every one of them would have known who she was. I mean, not only is she a Canaanite, okay? So, I mean, just complete outsider, a foreign, you wouldn't want, right? That, they, they wouldn't want to, to intermix there. Not only was she that, but Tamar. I mean, her, her story, and so... Judah, right? Um, that's who she has, has the baby with. Twins, actually. Judah was already married, first of all. Um, he had three sons uh, through, his, through his wife. Um, and Tamar, his daughter-in-law, uh, becomes his daughter-in-law. Marries one of those, those sons. You're following that so far, right? Um, but his son, Ta- uh, Judah's son, dies. So Tamar is, is a widow. And, and her... Uh, experience is essentially to be completely rejected uh, by that family. Judah wants nothing to do with her. His other sons really want nothing to do with her. She's, she's trash to them. She's an outsider. They, she's just garbage, and they leave her on the trash heap, and she's left destitute and alone. And in a, in a society like that, there are very few options for a destitute, lonely woman. And so she does the few, one of the few things available to her. She disguises herself as a prostitute, and she waits for her father-in-law to solicit her. And he does, and we have twins, Perez and Zara. Which means that Jesus is the eventual byproduct of both incest and solicitation. The family tree doesn't always spread out quite, quite like you'd want it to. And Matthew doesn't want us to miss that she's in here. And these twin boys were, were raised by their single mom. Then Hezron and Ram, basically nobodies. Amenadab, he's a likely member of the rebellion. Uh, the 40-year the like wandering in the wilderness, Moses, the whole, the whole bit, he's, he's probably part of that, that crew. Uh, after him is Nashon, uh, some sort of leader, followed by another nobody, Salmon. Now Boaz is interesting. You can read a lot about Boaz in, in the book of, of Ruth, but who's, who's his mom? Rahab. 
There's only one reason that Matthew includes that name in there. It's, it's shock value. Because again, they all knew who Rahab was. I mean, she's a woman, first of all. I strike one, frankly, in that culture against her. Um, she's a Canaanite, strike two. Prostitute, strike three. Uh, political refugee, strike four, I guess, right? She, she's the, the individual who, who um, God shows favor to in Jericho, right? The city is being destroyed, and, and yet she's allowed to, to survive. She helps the spies and, and is allowed not only to, to come into uh, this family, but she's, she's made one of them through them. Fully, fully enveloped into their, to their lives, even here, to be brought into this, this actual family. Imagine the reunions of this, right? Then comes Obed by Ruth. Ruth is another foreigner. And her story? I mean, she herself, she's considered a noble woman, um, without a doubt, if you, if you read the book of Ruth. And yet, I mean, at least compared to, you know, Tamar and, and Rahab. But Ruth was a Moabite. Talk about ethnic prejudice. It, it doesn't get much worse than this. I mean, uh, do you know how the Moabites got started? Got to go, go back in the story a little bit, a little, little flashback here. Um, so Abraham, remember him at the very beginning, he, he has this nephew named Lot. And one night, Lot gets super drunk. I mean, essentially, his own daughters slip him a roofie uh, and have their way with him and give birth to the Moabites, also part of this family history. And the Moabites were so despised by the Israelites that they weren't even allowed near the temple to the 10th generation. They, they wanted nothing to do with these people. And yet here, here is Ruth in the family. The mother of Jesse. The father of David the king. All right, so that's the first 14. The next 14 are all kings. And you know, like David, right? You're, you're, we're here at this, this moment, and if you, if you know anything about the sort of biblical history, David is he's like the hero, right? The pinnacle, it all, it all hinges upon David. David and Goliath, David. David, man after God's own heart, David. But what is the one thing Matthew points out about King David? Only one little tidbit. He had Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Even the way he says it, right? he doesn't say by Bathsheba and just hope you forget who she is, but no, by this other guy's wife. That's, that's how it happens. Uriah the Hittite, right? Another, another foreigner, a man that David murders in cold blood. And if you don't know that story, I mean, David, I mean, David is the awesome, right? Again, he's the pinnacle. He's the hero of all of this. And yet he sees Bathsheba and he wants Bathsheba and he's the king. And so he takes whatever it is he wants, it's doubtful whether or not Bathsheba had any say in the matter whatsoever. Because she's, he's king, right? And she gets, she gets pregnant. And rather than to own his own shame, David ruthlessly has his own loyal soldier killed on the battlefield just so that he can save face. Well, that first child dies in infancy. And David marries Bathsheba and they end up having Solomon together. And Solomon is, he's kind of the unlikely heir. He's not the oldest son, right? That's how it would typically go. He's just David's favorite, frankly. A son of David's violence and lust. 
And Solomon is just a chip off the old block. Yeah, he's wise. We know him for that. He also had 700 wives and 300 sex slaves. And he ends up adopting the the cultural practices around them. He begins the the process of, of trading out Yahweh, the true God, Israel's God, our God, for all these pagan idols around them. And this, believe it or not, is the high point. It actually gets worse from here. I mean, David and Solomon, they're, again, they're considered the, the, the greatest part of, of all of this. And yet Solomon's son, Rehoboam, I mean, already by, by this point, like, okay, it's been, you know, David was the first in his line of kings, right, as, as king, Saul, but he, different family line, David, and then Solomon, and then Rehoboam is so self-centered and power-hungry that he leads the, the entire nation into anarchy and it splits in two. It, it's, it's done with already, right? But the third generation, it's falling apart. And he's the one who begins wholesale then to trade Yahweh for these other gods. And Abijah follows suit. And then Asaph and, and Jehoshaphat, they're actually a couple of bright spots and a bunch of mess. And there's Joram. Joram murders his six brothers so that he can maintain power. Uzziah and Jotham, not the worst. It's not really anything to write home about. Ahaz is pretty terrible. Hezekiah is actually pretty good. But Hezekiah's son... Manasseh, it really doesn't get worse. King Manasseh did everything evil, worshipped every god but Yahweh, desecrates the temple. I mean, he, he sacrifices his own sons in the fires to worship these, these pagan gods around them, completely abandoning Yahweh. I mean, it actually even says at one point that, that Manasseh uh, fills the city of Jerusalem from one end of the city to the next with the blood of the innocent. He is a ruthless, murdering dictator. I mean, to find Manasseh in your family tree is like find, a little bit like finding out that, that Hitler was your grandpa, right? And he leads Israel into so much sin I mean, by the time that Manasseh is done with Israel, God is essentially done with them. And he promises, this is, this is the breaking point, that exile is coming, destruction and pain, because you have abandoned me. But not quite yet. Because then there's Amos, he's wicked, Josiah's good. And then the wicked king, Jeconiah, he's the real last of the kingship. The final king on David's lines. Final, final, like ever final, Jeconiah. As God's people are shipped off to Babylon. Slaves, exiles. Another 14. Now some of you are panicking, like 14 more to go, really. Um, I promise this, this, this can be pretty fast because we just don't know much of anything about these last ones. So, last 14, Jeconiah, he gets another nod. Uh, then the Shealtiel, whose only claim to fame is that his son is Zerubbabel. That's all we know about him. Uh, and then Zerubbabel actually, I mean, what an incredible story. Zerubbabel is actually allowed back in to Israel. I mean, he's shipped away to Babylon and, and there, and he, he brings a small group of God's faithful people back, and they begin to, to rebuild the temple. And it, and it looks as if things finally are getting better, like it's, it's going to be okay. And then, and then there's silence. For 400 years, there's silence.
400 years is a long time to wait for God to speak, to do something. But when the, when the time was just right, Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Because all those other guys, I mean, Abayud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, Akim, Eliud, Eleazar, Mathan, and Jacob, they're just a bunch of nobodies. Unimportant and otherwise forgotten, remembered only for this. They made it through the silence, and they are living evidence that God's promises don't stop, that nothing can prevent him from doing what he wants. And so Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who's called Christ, one big, fat, ugly kingdom. Good luck, Messiah. But what Matthew is doing here, we, we just, we can't overlook it. These aren't just a bunch of random facts for him or empty names or silly little stories, good and bad. Because Matthew isn't just trying to point out that Jesus is a king or even, even their king. He wants us to declare, he's writing this so that we would declare him to be our king. Yours and mine. And so if, if any of this is true, and this story as it's going to unfold in the, in the weeks ahead, if any of this is true, this awful family portrait, the question we have to ask, what, what gives Jesus the right to be my king? To be our king? Now, if you're, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Let me just say, first of all, we're really glad that you're here. Um, we hope that this is a place where you can explore with us. And frankly, as we enter into this, this story of Matthew, it's the story of Jesus. And so if you want to know more about Jesus, what he taught and how he lived, come join with us these next few weeks as we explore these things together. We hope this is a place where you can ask questions and, and seek out who he actually is and why we continue to believe. But in so doing, I, I, hope, I hope that you'll give him a fair trial. And at the very least, you may, not, you may not believe anything that Matthew says, but at the very least, I hope that you recognize that Matthew is doing his hardest, his best work in showing us that, this, that, that he believes this story, right? Regardless of we do. Because he's rooting it over and over again in, in real history, with real names, in real people, in real places, really on this, this planet. That's Matthew's starting point. We've got to at least give him that. And if you, if you are a believer... The question we have to wrestle with, is he, is he really our king? Does he have control of my family and my work and my hobbies and my money and my free time? Matthew thinks he should. And, and here's, here's why, even from the genealogy. Let me, let me point out quick, three quick reasons. And, and this, this for me is, is, for me, it's, is one of the reasons why I find this story so compelling why I'm drawn to this Jesus, and why even this ridiculous like, genealogy that's so hard to get our minds around 2,000 years later, why it matters so deeply. This is, this is why I've given my life to this Jesus. Three, three things from the genealogy here. First, first, Jesus understands the mess. He, he gets it. I mean, he, he knows what it's like to be a real person with brokenness and pain, heartache and family shame. No, no other so-called God can say that. And even though Jesus was, was without sin, he knows what it's like to have a past. 
we all have skeletons, personally, individually, as well as collectively, things that we wish we could forget, things that, that continue to hurt us or push us down or hurt others and, and, and push them down, right? But if God can use those things in Jesus' life to bring about the Son of God, what can't he use in your life and mine? Why not let him be king of the mess? Second, consider this. He really is for all. You can't miss it in, this, in these names, right? He actually is, not just in theory, but what, what other God or religion or worldview or ideology can actually make that claim that this is for everyone, that Jesus comes Everyone, rich and poor, the kings and, and the lowly, right? The educated and the, the uneducated, men, women, young, old, typical families as well as single parents and those, those who are unable, the, the loved and the popular as well as the, the hated and the despised. People who, who don't belong. I mean, yeah, the Israelites, but also foreigners, immigrants, refugees, even the ethnically unclean not to mention all the sinners, liars, cheats, murderers, idolaters, dictators, just about, I mean, anybody you can think of, right? Who's not somehow found in this list? Kelly and I have been watching uh, a newer show uh, called The Man in the High Castle. It kind of reimagines uh, the world as if, um, as if the Nazis had won World War II. You can see it's, it's a little bit bleak. That's one of their, their main images. It's a, bleak, it's a bleak story, and yet it's also rather vanilla. Because, because what that, that world sort of reimagines is that anybody who's different or unwanted by those in power, they're just not there anymore. I mean, by this, it's 20 years after World War II, and so they've all either been executed or enslaved. There's nobody left. It's all the same. Everybody speaks the same, looks the same, talks the same, acts the same, holds the same values. It's uniform, but it is brutal. This, this vision of, of what could have been. God's vision for our world couldn't be more different than that. I mean, even, even in the way that he chooses to come into to planet Earth, and if, if that is true, why not let him define the picture that we have of what his kingdom ought to look like? Of, of who gets in and who doesn't and what it ought to look like and who we like and who we don't and who we agree with and who we... Let him decide. Finally. So again, he's, he's a king who understands. He's a king who really, truly, actually is for all. And, and third here, he's a king who saves sinners. And Matthew, he hasn't told us that. Not yet, anyway. That's, that's next week. Um, he, will, he will get to there. But he has indeed shown us, hasn't he? That Jesus comes from sinners for sinners. For he is the only king born to die. Born to come into this world to, to enter and, and to, to destroy sin and death and all that is ugly and evil around us and within us. King of one ugly kingdom. And he could have come in ashamed, right? Ashamed of his, of his ancestors or ashamed of us. I mean, look at us, right? Instead, he comes to redeem it, to redeem us. He, he dies for them too, doesn't he? And he embraces the world with all its mess. But he never leaves us there. I mean, even Abraham, right? Faithless liar that he often was. 
God reaffirms his promises over and over and over to him. And those, those three first families, right, unable to have kids, and yet God gives them an entire nation of, of descendants. And, and even Jacob, the liar, the swindler, is given, given a brand new name, and, and he uses even Judah's victimization, right, and, and Tamar's desperation, and Rahab's prostitution, and Ruth's ethnic shame, all to bring about the Davidic dynasty. Even David sins. Even Solomon builds God his temple, and Manasseh is given a chance to repent, to be restored, and to, to come back. And Zerubbabel brings even the small straggling group of people back into Jerusalem to rebuild God's, God's temple. Even the nobodies, the, the no-names, the, the quickly forgotten are evidence that God's promises never die, that you can be incredibly insignificant or feel that way, as if your life counts for nothing, and yet still be welcomed into this incredible family this place of of redemption because this is what our God does. He redeems the faithless, the deceivers, the sexually immoral. He gives hope to the barren, to the fatherless, to the the single parents, for for the immigrants and the the refugee, the outcasts, the nobodies and all, all those who are forgotten. There are no throwaways in God's kingdom, which means there is no mistake too big for Jesus to handle. No past too painful that he cannot heal. No relationship too far gone that that he cannot mend. No people we cannot welcome and no sin he cannot forgive. This is who he is. This is is why he comes. And Matthew wants us to see on page one of his gospel. It's why it's called good news. People, Jesus is king. Jesus is king of one ugly kingdom. But he's making us beautiful. Let's pray. Father God, I am blown away that you would go to such lengths to rescue us. God, that you would even show us all these ugly parts. So much sin, so much brokenness, so much by, by that, those standards and, and cultural expectations, people that we would want nothing to do with, and yet they're, they're part of your family. And God, that gives me hope that if, if they can be a part, then maybe I can too. That Jesus really did come to save all people, to rescue all who come to him in faith, regardless of, of who we are, whatever our backgrounds is, all, all the regrets that we have and mistakes, the sins that so quickly overtake us. That you died for those things and you long to make us beautiful. God, would you give us a glimpse of that even now? Would you help us to see what you are doing in our lives and in our community? And would you give us hope God, that you are not done with us and that you will continue to bring about your your plan, your your plan for wholeness and and beauty and redemption and restoration for us as individuals as well as collectively and for for all of of reality, God, that that your redemption extends that far. And so, Lord Jesus, we trust you. We praise you. Help us to worship you now.